Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Trail listeners, this is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. The entire month I will be broadcasting the show from Australia. We are on location in Australia on the land of the Garigou people, one of 29 different tribes or clans around Sydney, Australia, and just one of over 5,000 around Australia. The Garigou people are of the Eora Nation. We are now in modern-day Sydney on the east coast of Australia. We are speaking with Russell Dawson, director of Kumuri, Australia's number one in entertainment and education in Aboriginal culture. Russell, where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in a little place called Tenerfield. As a young boy, from the age of when I was born to the age of seven, I grew up in a little place called Tenerfield. That's on the New South Wales and Queensland borderline in West. Growing up as a young kid out in the bush, it was uh, very good. We made a lot of fires. And where I come from, there's a lot of mountains and stuff like that. So in all the mountains, you actually found like a lot of rock caves and stuff like that, and pretty fun. Going out playing cowboys and Indians and stuff like that, and you know, camping out, going out in the bush for like three or four days by ourselves. I found the parents know where we were, so yeah, it was pretty adventurous. Having a lot of fun in the bush, like a lot of natural resources out there. Being part of uh, an Aboriginal family, we also had like Aboriginal bush skills, so it made it very, very good for us. You know, we got to get like, um, at the age of six and seven, we was going to get like kangaroos and stuff and porcupine and everything else, cook them up wild wild birds and wild chickens and stuff like that so it was pretty good for someone listening who maybe doesn't know australia all that well could you tell them a little bit more about where you come from the land that you come from we originate from uh, my people are called the gumaro people it's a little town called uh, mori it's about eight hours northwest of sydney out there gets pretty hot the camillaro people actually are the, one of the biggest uh, land masses of land in australia it was also known as the most fiercest warriors in the country like Camilleroy people, also known as the fiercest warriors in the country. So when, uh, when we have our traditional tribal warfares, everybody knew if they are going to fight the, the Camilleroy people, they knew it was going to be a war. Pretty well known through the Australia with our traditional warfares and our particularly our traditional styles of fighting. Tell me a little bit more about your traditional styles of fighting. Just uh, our techniques and stuff like that. We're going to combat and basically use, with it pretty much the only Aboriginal tribe in Australia actually used head shields, baseball caps. And so when we going to traditional tribal warfare, we actually use these clay pots as shields for we actually go in to have that fight. So when we get hit in the head with a, a nulla-nulla, it's like a stick. The nulla-nulla actually put a hole in your head. So we actually knew what was going to happen if we get hit. So therefore we created the first Aboriginal head shields. Yeah, like a, it was like a hat. Yeah, just made out of clay. Russell, you're the director of Kumuri, and you guys are number one in education and Aboriginal culture around Sydney. So could you tell me a little bit more about 
Aboriginal peoples of Australia, the history and how long you have been in this land? We believe our people have been here since the beginning of time. Uh, we actually call that the dream time. As we sit here today, it's actually part of the dreaming. In Australia, we've got over 5,000 different tribes. We spoke over 800 different dialects of language. We had a very special thing called a songline. The songline would give you the permission to walk through different countries, different tribes, territorial areas, also through sacred lands. In Australia, like we've got the Rainbow Serpent, who was the creator. He came from uh, our spirit god, it's called um, Biami. Biami actually created the Rainbow Serpent to come down and as he um, created the Rainbow Serpent to come down to um, shape the lamb with his belly and all the rivers, stuff like that. The Rainbow Serpent was actually a little bit lonely. And he said to Biami, well, you've got to create some more stuff here for me, you know, I'm here by myself. And so Biami created all the animals and stuff in Australia. After they had all the animals and he created man and woman. Some like Mabak and Jira, or Adam and Eve, pretty much a similar story. And after that, they created all the history in the land as we lived here. Aboriginal people who live as one as the land. We respect uh, the land animals, they're like our brothers and sisters. Same as uh, Mother Earth, that's our, that's our mother, so I respect Mother. Very important. Before we had the European settlers, it's coming in the 1700s. Our people roamed the land. Basically, our people are lovers and carers. You know, we all had an understanding with each other. And basically, we had an understanding and acknowledge with the land. Being part of our traditional ceremonies, when we um, actually do our ceremonies, actually pays respects to a lot of the native animals because we actually, when we go out hunting and killing those animals, so we pay respect to them animals for our survival. Because if it weren't for the native animals, we wouldn't be here. So therefore that's when we paint up in our traditional colours, our red, our yellow and our white. The red represents the land, the yellow represents the sun, that's the ancestors, and the white represents a good spirit. And those are the colours of the Aboriginal flag as well, one of the flags of Australia. The Aboriginal flag was actually made in 1972, and that was made by, I think it was a Scottish man. But the way he looked at it, for his eyes, was um, the red land. He's seen the people as black, and he's seen that big yellow sunset. So that's how can we come up with the flag. According to cave drawings and studies, the Aboriginal peoples have been around for at least 40,000 years, if not upwards of 60,000 years? Yeah, with um, traditional Aboriginal artwork, we actually got traditional Aboriginal artwork on the cave walls here in Australia, basically backdated over three to 400,000 years old. We've even got traditional paintings on the wall of UFOs and stuff like that, and that was how we communicated with the outside world. And that's what we believe to become from the outside world. We paint our UFOs up on our walls because it shows us their connection. It shows us how we have a, an understanding with the land and the planet, and same as anybody actually come into our country, just like if it was out of sky or if it was across the sea or across the land. So we had that communication and understanding. And I think it was very important. Basically, if you want to get to know the land, is to get to know the people. Tell us about where we are recording this interview right now, the land around here. Yeah. This land here is actually part of the Gadigal people. Gadigal people is one of 29 different tribes or clans in Sydney, Australia. We're actually sitting today as actually one of the little national parks here, Botanic Gardens, just down here. Over to my left here, there's a place over there, it's called um, Rushcutters Bay. A lot of history just in this area here. This is where we had Captain Cook and all the settlers come here, Mr Phillips. Tell us a little bit more about that history of when the first Europeaners landed in the Sydney Harbour and, and why they did, and what's the clans that they came across. Basically, we had the French here first, before we had the English, and then we had the Chinese here, a lot of different other nationalities here. Even the Dutch was here like 400 years ago. 
We met all the Chinese coming in, they were doing the gold rush up in the top end of Australia, right through to central desert of Australia. But when the Europeans come here, um, the winds actually bring them here. So therefore we can see that was part of the peace and the reconciliation of our people. We've actually seen those big tall boats. Basically, Mr Captain Cook, he planted his uh, Union Jack on a little island about six miles out of here. And they claimed that it was Telenullius. There's no Aboriginal people, it was a vacant land. But when he first came here, basically there was over three to four million Aboriginal people here. And so in the last 20 years, they've killed off over three million people. So only a million of us left. Russell, let's talk about the last hundred or so years of Aboriginal history in Australia. Well, we look at Australia, it's like there's two sides to Australia. All Australia has a black history. So every European comes here, the English, like, um, they're going to understand that Australia is Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. We don't own the land, but we're the original caretakers of the land. And now as um, caretakers of land, we have a job to do that, fulfil our shoes and stuff like that. So in the last 20 years, basically we had the covers come through and all well, the English come through, the troopers, basically put all of our people up on the missions. That's what they actually do anyhow, and um, basically, you know, try to tell you you got to learn this one here, you know, learn the English and stuff like that, and you're not allowed to speak your language anymore, stuff like that. So that's been like the last 20 years of trying to wipe out the language and stuff like that, try to kill the culture. For myself, growing up in Australia, like I'm um, 40 years old, when I grew up in a little place called Brisbane, up in Queensland, Australia, going through school and stuff, there was a lot of discrimination with the Aboriginals and the, and the white society, stuff like that. And then when I seen the Chinese come through, they get discriminated against and so on and so on. So the European was like a race that had like a lot of hatred in them, and we can actually see that. And that's why today, like, we look at these European people saying, OK, look, you know, we know that they're sick and basically they need to be healed some kind of way. So that's where now, like, sharing their culture today is important, where they get to live with us, learn our culture, Forget about the past, but, you know, remember the past, but always look for, towards the future, you know, and uh, embrace Aboriginal culture, any culture in the world, all cultures. We're on location in Australia on the land of the Garigo people, one of 29 different clans around Sydney and one of over 5,000 across Australia. We're speaking with Russell Dawson, director of Kumuri, Australia's number one in education and Aboriginal culture. Russell, I'd like to play a song, one of the songs on your CD. Maybe track number four. Track number four is important. It's an important message for all of our people and stuff like that. The message is to get up and move forward, you know. We believe this land is like a kangaroo. There's a lot of kangaroos in this land, same as emus. And so we live as one of those animals. And in our traditional laws, these kangaroos carry culture with them. So we, when we go for our ceremonies, we look at the kangaroos as going forward. So they can't go backwards. And same as the emu. There's all about us all going forward and, you know, remember the past, live today and dream the future.
Although some believe that indigenous Aboriginal Australians have been using the didgeridoo for over 40,000 years, the oldest records of indigenous Aboriginal Australians playing the didgeridoo date back 2,000 years in the form of old Northern Territory cave and rock paintings. Just a century ago, the didgeridoo had a restricted distribution in Australia. With the introduction of missions, roads and infrastructure, the art of making the didgeridoo seemed to then spread across most parts of Australia. The vast majority of Yulungu people made the didgeridoo from the stringy bark eucalyptus trees. The trees are naturally hollowed out by termites, which burrow in the ground, lay eggs, and the larvae eat the inside of the eucalyptus tree. The indigenous Aboriginal Australian didgeridoo maker has a sense of the appropriate tree, which he then tests by removing a small piece of bark and hitting the tree with his finger or a tool to hear if the sound indicates a hollowness. If the tree is not sufficiently hollowed out, the subject location is remembered and the tree is left for another time. Such sensitivity to nature is vastly different from the non-indigenous approach, where large sections of forestation are cleared without regard for the environment and readiness for any particular tree. At this time, we have much to remember and understand about what worked well for different indigenous tribes who coexisted and thrived for thousands of years before outside interference. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, recorded on location in Australia. (laughs) Trail listeners, this is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. The entire month, I will be broadcasting the show from Australia. This is modern-day Sydney on the east coast of Australia. We are speaking with Russell Dawson, director of Kumuri, Australia's number one in education and Aboriginal culture. Russell, I'd like to talk to you about the instrument, the beautiful instrument that you play, the yadaki. Didgeridoo is not an Aboriginal word, but an onomatopoeic European word used to describe the instrument. After the British invasion, the didgeridoo's distribution spread out from northern Australia across the country. Traditionally, only men play the didgeridoo. Let's talk about the yadaki from the beginning. The yadaki, commonly known as didgeridoo to the Western world, there was a man by the name of Charles Darwin. When he first sailed up into Darwin, he actually heard the traditional owners up in Arnhem Land. That was actually part of the Yungle people. And the Yungle people actually seen the boat on the water actually playing there. Mr. Charles Darwin actually heard the rhythms. Did you move, did you move, did you move? So actually read down his little book, Did You Do, Did You Do, actually what he heard. So that's how it actually got its name, Did You Do. Uh, what we call it, we call it Giriki, Kadaki, Tandala, Gurumurugambak. There's only a few of them. There's probably uh, a lot more different names than that, especially up around the, the area where it comes from, up and down. It was never played down around New South Wales or in Queensland for a ceremony. Uh, it's been around in Aboriginal culture now for about 10,000 years, and a little bit more. Only for over the couple of last couple, couple of hundred years, it's actually travelled down through New South Wales and stuff like that. And now we play down here. Women do not play the didgeridoo. Up there in, in Yungle country, they have different laws and different customs. They have the right to say who can and who can't play because it's actually part of their traditional ceremonies. I see like a lot of people from around the world, they come in, they actually go to Darwin, they get on a bit of a, a weekend cruise or two, three week camp out with the traditional owners, men and women, go into the bush and they actually teach all people how to do the, the didgeridoo. So women and men do play didgeridoo. 
But in Aboriginal culture, like, because it's being stereotyped, it actually represents a man, and that's why the women don't play it. And so in our custom for Aboriginal women, that they don't really play it, but for other people, you know, different cultures, I believe that they're allowed to play it. That's why it's been passed out of ceremony. They've had ceremony to allow it to be played by the world. I think in the first year, when they released that didgeridoo to the world, they sold three times more didgeridoos than the entire history of guitars in the first year, so it's pretty big. And all that money and stuff went back and benefited all the local people in Darwin, so it was good. Let's talk about how the didgeridoo is made. First, starting with the insects that are highly involved with the making of the didgeridoo. Okay, there's, there's two ways didgeridoo is actually made, where it comes from. It's made by Mother Nature, has a little thing inside it, in the tree. The traditional trees that it comes from are actually called stringy bark trees. As a seed pod, they actually start growing, and as a little small tree, it picks up a germ. It goes inside the heart of the tree, and it turns into like a fungus, and that fungus is actually like a cancer. And so that tree will only grow for so long, and once it grows for so long, the tree will end up dying. So you can actually go into the bush and see which trees are dying because of the fungus or the cancer inside the trees. So they actually grow hollow naturally. And then you just come along, you tap it and make sure it is hollow and chop it down and pretty much there's your yadaki, your didgeridoo. The other one was made by gum trees out in the drought areas where there's no rainforest and stuff. They've got like the little white ants, the termites. They get into the middle, eat all the soft wood, leave the hardwood to last. And basically you come along and same thing, you're looking for a hollow log. So you go to the trees, you pretty much can see all the trees all hollow in here because you know the termites are there, see all the termite mounds around the place, so therefore you know that all the trees are pretty much hollow. Let's talk about the ceremony, the process of actually making the didgeridoo when an Aboriginal man goes out into the bush and makes the didge. Well, traditionally uh, for many years, the women up in Yungo countries are gathering for the didgeridoos. Once they find the right tree, they actually put the first bit of wind through it and when they blow it, basically they get a good little sound over, a little buzzing noise, and then basically they hand over to the men. And so the women are actually the ones who go out hunting and making the right sticks for the men. And basically men will go out hunting for kangaroos and stuff like that, you know, or fish, turtle. Yeah, so it was actually a woman's job to go out and basically look for a didgeridoo, cut it down and give it to the husband for ceremony. And this didgeridoo that you have here, I would love for you to play it a little bit, but let's first talk about what kind of wood it is and where it comes from. This digital is made by a stringy bark tree. It's like a traditional one, it's only made hollow. It's a real one. It's not like a, um, a pretend one. It's nice and hollow, it's nice and firm. And basically, and you can see the colour in it. It's actually a nice colour, and, and then so it gives me a nice tone. So when you've got a traditional didgeridoo or instrument, your darky from the bush, you can actually hear the tone in it. And once you know you've got a good tone, you know it's a good didgeridoo. <laughs> We are speaking with Russell Dawson, director of Gumuri, Australia's number one in education in Aboriginal culture. Russell, tell me about the Kawaburi and when the didgeridoo is traditionally played with a songman and a clapsticker. 
Well, uh, the Corbury ceremony, we call it eulogy, and the eulogy when we go for ceremony, um, they do be played in the beat of the clapsticks, and also you'll have the song men singing the songs. So the instrument is actually, uh, we call the original groove generator, so it'll back up the song men and the men on sticks. When the didgeridoo is played in Okrabari, it's assisting in storytelling. Yeah, when we're doing the traditional Aboriginal song and dance, when we actually stamp our feet on the ground, we're actually massaging Mother Earth, you know, and letting her know that we love her and stuff like that. And, and we believe that the spirit of the Rainbow Serpent, it's the voice, what's left behind after the Rainbow Serpent is the, the voice, and that's the Yadaki. And the clapsticks, actually the teeth of the Rainbow Serpent. Tell us about the dream time. The dream time. Dream time is just basically where we come from, you know. We come from the dream time many, many thousand years ago, over two, three hundred thousand years. Right now, as you look up into the sky, that's our church, you know, and all the stars are basically of our ancestors overlooking us. We don't see them at daytime, but nighttime they come out, and, and that's when you make a fire. So every time you make a fire, you're actually connecting with the ancestors every night. It's important because that's our religion, that's our culture. Where I come from, the Gumuru people, my name in Aboriginal is Badiwalo Dungothiani Bandilang Gumuru. So my name, I'm a deadly red belly black snake, and that's my totem. That name comes from an old man called Nanyara Batari, and he comes from WA, Western Australia. So he raised me since the age of four years old, and basically he started teaching me to do it at the age of six. At the age of 12, I started busking with him, and he started teaching me all the song and dance. At the age of 12, I actually became a professional tutor in Aboriginal culture, and I actually had a job for the Catholic education. Held on that job for about 15 years, and that's when I created my own, my own story, my own dreaming. Because if I didn't do that, I would be contribution to the killing of our people. So therefore, I had to go out and, and be a cardiologist, you had to be a leader, you know. And I think it's very important if you've got many voices, more action, that's good for our culture. Russell, let's talk about the significance of animals. You were just talking about the rainbow serpent, which is regarded as a creator of life who emerged from the earth and created the rivers, lands, and birds and mammals. The significance of animals is very important. You say that the land is your mother, the water is part of your veins. So let's talk a little bit more about the significance of animals for the Aboriginal peoples. Animals are very important because we all have a family totem. Where we come from, we've got the Goanna, that's our Camilleroy family totem. And then we have the kangaroo. Basically, these totems are designed for our survival because it depends which part of the country you come from. You can eat kangaroo, some plants you can't. Now, it depends on your diet. Also, it comes down to totems. Our totems are very important to have an understanding with that animal, the relationship, shows your relationship with the land. And our traditional animals like the kangaroo, emu, porcupine, goanna, all beautiful bushaka. But if we all ate kangaroo, we'd be no more kangaroos, you know? So that's where the totems come into place. And same as porcupine, you know? Some people have the totem porcupine or goanna, kangaroo, emu. And basically this here is just to protect these animals and their coexistence in this country. So when for these native animals, we look at native animals also as our marriages. We know who we can marry and who we can't marry. And so it's very important that a kangaroo can't go and marry a kangaroo. You know, not from this tribe or from certain areas. So it had to be specific people with traditional names. So we have that traditional names. So everybody knows which clan they're from and stuff like that. So we know who we can marry and who we can't. Let's talk about message sticks and song lines a little bit more. Well, message sticks are very important. Basically, when we want to have a, a eulogy or a ceremony, a corroboree, maybe one or two people leave the tribe with the message stick. He might go on walkabout, 
Then might go walk about for like uh, six months and let them know about the ceremonies going to take place in certain areas. And basically that's what Message Stick was all about. They're passing a message, telling them like maybe two, three moons or five moons from now, we're going to have a very sacred ceremony and you're welcome. And so therefore that's like part of the movement of our people. Our people didn't just live in one area for all their life. We actually moved around, especially with the season, in certain areas. Now, Russell, I've read stories about Aboriginal peoples communicating through the land. It's called telepathic dreaming. And basically that's how we communicate. And to get to know the land is to get to know the people. And, you know, whatever land you're in, you, you pretty much you got an understanding, you know. It's just like, you know, you grab a shell. You grab a shell and you take that shell anywhere in the universe even out of Australia, out of any, any shore, take it into the atmosphere and you still hear the sound of the sea inside that. So it just shows you an understanding and connection that has with the ocean. The same as us, like we've got to have that same passion and that same thought and dream, that same spirituality for the land, you know, and native animals and stuff like that. Out in the bush, you're not alone in here. There's plenty of eyes out there, especially like in sacred areas. If we're going to be sitting, if somebody's going to come through the land, they've got to know about that sacred area. You're not allowed to go there, you know, you can go this way here. And that's where the message sticks are important too. Song lines are very important. When you learn that song line, it gives you permission to travel through country. One of the song lines that goes right around Australia was the Yamari. And basically you learn the Yamari and it's give that permission to travel all through Australia, out into the central desert. Could you sing that song line for us, please? Yeah. I got taught that song there, Yambare Menengar, by a man from the Ladil people in Mountain Island. And it goes like this. Yamare Menengar, Yamare Menengar, Yamare Menengar, Yamare Yamare Merenga, Yamare Merena, Yamare Merenga, Yamare. Hey, you want to, want to, my, you want to, want to. Hey, you want to, want to, my, you want to, want to. Hey, you want to, want to, my, you want to, want to. Hey, Yamare Merenga, Yamare Mer. Wonderful. We are on location in Australia on the land of the Gadigal people one of 29 different tribes around Sydney, and just one of 5,000 around Australia. This is modern-day Sydney on the east coast of Australia. We are speaking with Russell Dawson, director of Kumuri, Australia's number one in education in Aboriginal culture. Russell, let's play another song. Maybe one you can play on the didgeridoo? Some a little bit faster. Broadcasting from Australia, you're listening to The Trail Less Travelled, Missoula's source for outdoor information and inspiration. Ha, 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 ha. 
We are on location in Australia on the land of the Garigal people, one of 29 different clans around Sydney and just one of 5,000 around Australia. This is modern-day Sydney on the east coast of Australia. We are speaking with Russell Dawson, director of Kumuri, Australia's number one in entertainment and education in Aboriginal culture. Russell, I'd like to talk to you now about Aboriginal art and how to read Aboriginal art. And from what I know, it was only starting to be put on canvas in the last 60 years. But before that, it was on the bark of eucalyptus trees and on caves. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the canvas hasn't been around for very, very long, but Aboriginal art has been around for many, many thousands of years. We paint traditional Aboriginal stories, especially like totems, because totems are kinship. Uh, out in the central desert, they have like a, a lot of dot painting. In Australia, we recognise there's two sorts of Aboriginal art. We have traditional dot painting, and on the east coast of Australia, we have the things called um, cross hatching. You never mix the two together because there's two different areas. Traditional Aboriginal dot art from central desert of Australia, we have like uh, jumper knuckers, that's like jumper jimpers, different totems. They go through their traditional ceremonies out there, and basically, they paint that story where they're dreaming of their family on the land. And those paintings could be anywhere from about 50 metres to 200 metres long. And so they paint that there just for the going to ceremonies. And before that traditional artwork there, that was part of the ceremony, the dream of their culture. On the east coast of Australia, we call it like X-ray art, where we look inside the animal. Basically we paint inside the animal, what it is, so you can actually see, put different colours on there. Different colours represent different parts of the body, different parts of what people can eat, like the elders and the babies, the women and the men. With the East Coast Dreaming of Australia, the cross-hatching, that there's all tell a story about the ocean and the sands. That's why we paint certain X-ray art. I think it's important to that we have the different colours, the red, the white, the yellow, because it indicates who's who in the tribes and who can wear what colour they can, and like the red for the men, yellow for the women, white for pretty much everybody. Is it also one way to tell someone else in your clan where you can find water or where the good hunting camp is in the watering hole or where you could find wild yams or depicting of the topographical map of the earth? Yeah, that's right. Uh, just say you're looking for kangaroos. You can actually look at the, the canvas today and it actually tell you where the kangaroos are. Or if you're looking for, uh, say, bush yams, so they'll be tell you, get this way here, it's going to be more or bush yams over here on the right-hand side, you know, near the billabongs and stuff like that. And Yeah, so it actually tells a story. It also tells you, like, walking paths and stuff like that. And, you know, if you ever get lost, you know, you go in, there's some water there, water holes here, kangaroos there, bush tucker there. So, yeah, it's very good. Let's talk about fire ceremonies, the smoking ceremonies, to welcome and heal, purify and connect you to the spirit world. That's been around now, culture for the no beginning of time, dream time. I think it's pretty much before native Aboriginals around the world. We all have that same thing that's called the fire dreaming or the fire ceremony. And basically that fire, you know, that's where we do all of our singing, our songs and our dances. Today we also use it to cleanse the spirit of the land. A lot of people want to come through to Australia, you know, and they want to meet Aboriginal people and they want to do like a smoking ceremony to make them feel welcome to the country. In Australia, we use the fire for our ceremony for welcome everybody, also for communication, also for like when somebody passes away, we send them off to their ancestors, and also when someone gets married, also as I said before, if you're, a, if you're feeling a bit sick, you know, something's chasing you, something bad, you know, we can actually do a, a special like smoking ceremony to heal you. Russell, I'd also be very interested in the concept of non-returning boomerangs. There's returning boomerangs and there's non-returning boomerangs, and many people think that most boomerangs, if thrown correctly, will return to you. 
Yeah, no, there's some different sorts of boomerangs. We've got the sky boomerang, that's a return of boomerang. They're actually for um, hunting birds out of the sky. Boomerangs were designed to chase birds, little birds, into the bushes. So we stand there with our nets. And what happens then, all the birds, little birds, will actually think that's a big eagle flying above their heads, trying to attack them. So they'll swoop down and go into the bushes. And that's where we stand in the bush with our nets. And that's how we used to go out hunting for the birds. Also, if you've got a flock of birds, you can knock a few out of the sky. And that's a return of boomerang. That one comes back, you throw that into the wind, and it actually cuts into the wind and comes back, and the wind will push it back to you. And that's when you catch it. The non-returner ones are basically larger ones. They're basically used for kangaroos, emus, and stuff like that. So when you throw it once, hopefully one, one throw, one hit. Pretty cool. Can you tell me, Russell, a little bit more about the different foods traditionally eaten? Not necessarily nowadays, but thousands of years ago. For example, wild yams, catfish, depending on where you live, and then some of the ways that they might have been hunted besides the boomerang. Women, it was their job to go out gathering. That's all for native wild berries, little goannas, uh, also going out making bush medicines and stuff like that. The men's job was to go out and look for kangaroo, the bigger stuff, the wild snakes, goannas, emus, kangaroos, even going out getting big fish and stuff like that. Speaking about going hunting in the ocean, you know, we have bark canoes. Uh, a lot of time we, we can play the yadaki, the didgeridoo, actually send out a bit of a horn sound and they'll send a vibration out to the out to the dolphins. The men will stand on the side of the water edge on the beach, tap their spears onto the water and we'll make that vibration go through out to the dolphins. The dolphins will hear it and they'll actually round up all the fish for us. They'll bring in all the fish in return. We um, catch the fish, we feed the dolphins and then at the end of the day, once we've done our hunting, we tell all the little babies and all the little kids to come down and to play with the dolphins, give them tickles and stuff like that. So it was a communication understanding. We believe the dingo is a wild dog of the sea, you know, just like a dingo on the land. The dolphin is a dingo of the sea. Russell, I'd like to end with the rainbow serpent, maybe a modern-day rainbow serpent. Like we mentioned before, the rainbow serpent has been found in rock art over 6,000 years old. The rainbow serpent is a powerful symbol of the creative and destructive power of nature. Do you think that there is a modern-day rainbow serpent that we can learn from? The story I know about the rainbow serpent, he come down, he created all the rivers in the land. Where he actually died was actually in a place called Harvey Bay, a little place up there called Fraser Island. And that's the only place in Australia that actually colored sand. That's, of course, that's his body was a rainbow serpent. And when his spirit went back up into the sky to the army, it actually created the Milky Way and all the colours in there. And that there's just a part of his scales. The modern day uh, history about that, I think, is important because it shares the true colours of the sky and the land. And it's like today, you know, like, um, we see, like, there's a lot of people coming here, all different colours. So on a modern day thing like that, when we see all different colours coming here, it's like all different people. We just see that spirit of the rainbow serpent. Russell? We see a lot of changes around the world nowadays with the power of Mother Nature, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes. And like you said earlier, when the Europeans came to Australia, a lot of the Aboriginal peoples just noticed that they were sick and they needed a little bit of healing. So for some of the people that aren't conscious of the power of Mother Nature and how we need to protect the planet, how can you guide us into a way of respecting Mother Nature, all the animals, big and small, and really understanding and being aware of the power of Mother Nature? I believe that comes in with the spirit of yourself. Everybody has a spirit. Everybody has a, a right to, if you're born into this world that we live upon, well, you're born with certain different kind of abilities. Abilities to live as long as you can. But if we're going to live in the world that we live in now, we know it's a crazy world. Basically, it's up to the individual people like ourselves who've got the right spirit to share that spirit and to keep the knowledge going of the past, you know, because the past is our future, you know, and we've got to change the future 
always move in the past, we'll change the future, but at the same time, too, you know, if we know our Mother Earth is sick, you know, it's our job to massage her. That's why we sing and dance and, and give her that love, you know. Um, because we look at the world now, like the modern day world, how it's creating so many different kind of problems and stuff like that, you know. Basically, the world is, is spinning a little bit faster than it normally is, you know. Mother Nature's Mother Nature, you know. And it's just like our lives, you know. We're here one day and we're going the next, you know. Uh, it's just up into the greatest spirit hand. But the world is a world, and um, I know if people of the world believe in, in good good spirit and good peace, you know, and if they can live as one as the earth, you know, and, and this is your heart, so the earth is your heart. If you've got no heart, but no soul, no spirit. So we've got to protect our world like that. Thank you so much, Russell, for meeting with me and doing this interview. Thank you, Sister Mandela. Let's end the show with three outdoor adventure tips, perhaps pertaining to Australia. Well, go to our website, check it out, kumari.com. If you get lost, tell us where you are, we come and find you. How's that sound? <laughs> how, about, <laughs> how about three outdoor adventure tips for going on walkabout, living in the bush? Yeah, if you want to go walkabout, make sure you're fully prepared. Have a bit of an idea about your country that you're walking in, anywhere in the world. It may be good to go and meet the local people, get a bit of knowledge from them, and always make sure you've got a safe point of contact and stuff like that, so something never goes wrong, or you need an emergency, make sure you're equipped these days. There's technology out there today, so it makes it a bit easier. What song from your CD would you like to end the show with? Probably track number nine, called Outback Journey. That's a little bit rock and rolly, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit rock and rolly. That just tells us a song that when we go walk about, say, come on, brother, sisters, let's go. Now we've got something to do. We're going to go for a party, basically. We're going for a celebration.
listening to The Trail Less Traveled, Missoula's source for outdoor information and inspiration. Recorded on location in Australia, I want to thank my guest for this week, Russell Dawson. Russell is a Camilleroy man with 30 years dancing experience. He dances for his culture and his people. He loves to share the traditions of the indigenous Aboriginal Australian people to keep the culture alive for future generations. Russell is a didgeridoo performance artist and the performance coordinator for Kumuri Management, which is an inspiring Aboriginal entertainment and education business, covering all aspects of the Australian Indigenous culture via a series of Aboriginal school and corporate incursions. The origin of Aboriginal peoples in Australia has been the subject of intense speculation since the 19th century. Until recently, no theory of migration had gained wide acceptance. Genetic studies had shown the Aboriginal peoples to be related much more closely to each other than to any peoples outside Australia. The indigenous Aboriginal peoples of Australia have been living with the land and animals for hundreds of thousands of years. There is much we can learn about the way these people interact with the environment they live in. The word Aborigine refers to an indigenous person of any country. Visit traillesstraveled.net to view pictures, read biographies, and podcast previous shows. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes. My name is Mandela, your host of the Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested outdoor adventure series, which aims to take its listener back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. If you know someone with good adventure stories, please contact me. For every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how the community can start adventuring in the same fashion. My adventure tip this week regards knickers. How many pairs should you take? With packing, less is definitely more. Extreme light packers will be in a cycle of wearing one pair, washing another, and drawing a third. But this is a bit harsh for most of us. On another note, Missoula, what can you do for the Clark Fork River this week? Hmm? Conserve water. Did you know that 3% of the Earth's water is fresh water? And of that 3%, two-thirds is trapped in glaciers and polar ice caps. That means only 1% of the Earth's fresh water supply is accessible for use. This is why it is so important to conserve the limited amount of water that we do have. The average American uses almost 2,000 gallons of water every day. This is twice the global average. If everyone does a little bit here and there, we will be able to cut down on consumption and preserve this valuable resource, and in effect, save our rivers. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula. But until next week's adventure, get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar cannot shred itself.